1: 2020 is a very strange year for humanity which very few could predict the consequences and the results that are affecting everyone. While our politicians, our governments, our great sages of philosophy, of law, of spirituality. While we respect these individuals, at the same time, not even they could predict the intensity and the trauma that we find afflicting humanity. But the reality is that while, on a global scale, we are experiencing great sufferings, the truth is that it should not surprise us, as ironic as that might seem. Because humanity ignores a very fundamental law of nature, which we are finding is being fulfilled with exactitude today. It is the law of cause and effect. Every action has a consequence. What I do as an individual affects humanity and vice versa. In the east we call this law karma, which is not some type of blind law where you're going to get what you deserve. It's a infallible, immutable law, that every action we produce has some type of impact, and that there are consequences to behaviors that are either upright or pure, or conditioned and filled with suffering. Humanity today ignores the causes of its current position. And as we began the meditation, it sometimes takes a great trauma, conflict, wars, violence, pandemics, political disputes, police brutality, racialized violence, in order for people to really begin to want to ask this question about why we suffer, about why we are in pain. The reality is that there were beings like Jesus, Buddha, Moses, Krishna, prophets, messengers of the divine who knew from their own experience the trajectory of humanity. And how certain actions produce consequences of great significance and while this is a law that has governed the rise and fall of societies in truth this should raise a very profound question for ourselves how do we produce suffering why do we suffer what are our actions that produce this mess that we see today. And rather than blame the government, the negligent, or the negligence of bureaucracy, of politicians, of political parties, it is better to be practical. How do we, on a moment-to-moment basis, on our day-to-day existence, produce suffering? Not only for ourselves, but for others. Humanity is blind. People ignore this law. That if we act with desire, with conditioned states of being, we become afflicted. And whether one believes in any particular religion or faith doesn't really matter. Unless we look at the facts of why There is so much conflict today. So, sadly, despite the efforts of many messengers, as we mentioned, to teach people how to change, how to alter the trajectory of humanity, their essential message, which is universal, has been adulterated has been sterilized they all taught that there is a way out of suffering a path that according to the religion or the tradition is distinct to the form of a culture but essentially the message is the same and while it is discouraging to look at the news the reality is that there is great cause to be inspired because there is a method and a way to overcome all of this whether on a collective scale or on the individual scale which is more important so we've been very blessed there are methods and instructions and teachings that can really change us and does not require any belief but through experimentation, through practice, through verification from experience, we can lessen our suffering and have a clarity and an insight by which to help others. So, this science is meditation. And to be specific, meditation is not a technique. It is not spacing out or entering into a state of relaxation, although these are preliminary. Meditation is a state of being, a state of consciousness that is not conditioned at all, that knows how to see and perceive life, reality, in a state of clarity, precision, understanding with wisdom, with intelligence, with love. This is the essential quality you find in all the great masters of humanity from any religion who embodied this ideal. And they all taught in their synthesis how to access the essential nature of our consciousness. Because right now, the reason why we are afflicted is because we have many desires, many beliefs that are split it's a fracturing we are fragmented and if you don't believe me we can simply perform a practice in which we examine a moment in our day perhaps we have a conflict or a trial a chaotic moment in which we feel that our mind our heart and our body are torn in many directions The reality is that we don't have a singular purpose of will. Of of direction. Because perhaps somebody criticizes us at work or we simply watch television to see what's going on in the political world. And we have many reactions that emerge in a single instant. We may be filled with anger, the thoughts of resentment towards a certain person. We may feel fear in the next. Pulled towards fight or flight possibly even despair this means that this is a moment in which we can see multiple reactions multiple states of conflicted wills and all meditative traditions teach that if you want to enter a profound state of serenity and understanding your will has to be one perfected sharp without any type of obscuration or filter. We call that conditioned sense of self or desire or will, ego. That's the Latin term for I, me, myself. And meditation teaches us how to look at what we are, who we are, without judgment, without labeling, Without prejudice, but simply look at the self, at these different wills, these impulses. Meditation has been known by many names. Bhavana, in Sanskrit, means mental development or becoming. Bhava, as in Buddhism, we hear the term "bhava chakra the wheel of being which is a map of different states of consciousness within Tibetan Buddhism especially which has its symbolic representation in the West in the Jewish tradition of Kabbalah which we'll talk about today we have the term dian or diana which means to see to perceive this is where we get words like Chan Buddhism in Chinese, or Zen in Japan. Contemplation in the early traditions of the church fathers was known by the Latin term meditatri, meditation, contemplation. And amongst the Sufis of the mystical tradition of Islam, they refer to it as fikrat, serene reflection, serene perception, which is the synthesis of meditation. A lot of people think that meditation is simply being calm. It's a necessary step, and it's a beautiful thing. When we have a state of equanimity and stillness that is so deep, that we rest from thought, from emotion, and from impulse, from the body. That is the groundwork by which you can really enter the highest teachings of meditation, which is the state of perception, to receive information about a given phenomenon. Whether it be from a scripture, a book, about reality, about ourselves. That state of reflection, of gaining new knowledge, that aha moment of understanding has been known by the term witnessing amongst the Sufis. In Islam, they have a very beautiful teaching in their doctrine that is very misunderstood. They pronounce what is called the shahida. In order to become Muslim, you say there is no God but God. And Muhammad is his prophet. In reality, the Arabic term shahida means to witness. shahida. It means to see. Divinity, which is not outside, but inside. To bear witness to something means, like in a court of law, you have seen it. You have verified it. You have experienced it. And therefore, you have no doubt. There is no belief. There is no ambiguity there. There is no conflict of interests. We simply know. And therefore, if we bear witness that there really is God and that Krishna is his prophet, Buddha is his prophet, Moses, and many masters like Jesus were his prophets, it's because we have seen it for ourselves within. So to really understand meditation... Of course, we first have to relax. That's the first step. But it's much more deeper than that. We'll talk about these stages themselves. But it can be very difficult now in these times, especially if you live in Chicago, which is where I'm from, where literally you see all sorts of violence being perpetuated throughout the country. We see the state of different cities and countries that are in uprising that are afflicted with great injustices where the material and even psychological. It's easy to say that we really live in unprecedented times. But the reality is that there's nothing new under the sun to quote Solomon from the Bible. Everything repeats Life is cyclical. Habits are ingrained. And the reality is that while these crises that are afflicting this planet are intense and they're becoming more severe, as I said, it should not surprise us that this is happening. Because if we examine our mind and if we're very sincere, we realize with great discomfort, that we have many elements, psychologically speaking, that are destructive. We may not believe that, but the question is, have we looked inside of ourselves to examine our own anger, our own fear, our own pride, our own avarice, qualities that we like to externalize and blame others of possessing an abundance, when in reality... If we're sincere we see that we have that inside That could be very disconcerting very uncomfortable but that is the reality humanity you can see according to history operates in cycles there have been many plagues that have afflicted humanity whether in Europe whether influenza There have been many times in history in which diseases have sprouted and killed many people. But we have the arrogance today to believe that somehow we are special. That this has never happened before. And while this is a terrible reality, it is a reflection of a cosmic law. In Buddhism, we call it samsara. Cycling, returning, repeating. And while this happens on a global scale, in our daily life, which is a snapshot, a microcosm, a picture of humanity itself, we find that we have habits and behaviors and ways of being that we repeat. And this is something that we should examine, that we should question. Governments have always tried to fix these problems, but they always failed. The reality is that no government, no institution, can change the individual. To quote Krishnamurti, we have to govern ourselves. If we, as an individual being, were to follow laws of ethics, of compassion, of kindness, of tolerance, of patience then the society would, would reflect that but we find that our political institutions and our governments smother the problem they don't know and teach the way for the individual to change for there to be real equity in humanity i'd like to read for you an excerpt from a book by Samael Vior, who is the founder of the modern Gnostic tradition. The Greek term gnosis means knowledge. And as we're explaining meditation, it is knowledge from experience without deviation into belief or theory. He wrote in a book called The Great Rebellion about the nature of genuine freedom, what this means for our meditation practice. I'll read for you at length. The meaning of freedom is something that has not yet been understood by humanity. Always presented more or less erroneously, very serious mistakes have been made about the concept of freedom. Certainly, we struggle for a word. We, be- we come to absurd conclusions. We commit all types of atrocities and shed blood on the battlefields. The word freedom is Fascinating. The whole world relishes it. Nevertheless, we have not grasped a real understanding of the term, and there is confusion regarding this word. It is impossible to find a dozen people for whom the word freedom means the same thing in the same way. The term freedom will never be understandable by subjective rationalism, meaning the conditions of our thinking, our habits, our behaviors. Everyone has different ideas about this term. People's subjective opinions are totally devoid of objective reality. When the question of freedom is propounded, in each mind there is incoherence, vagueness, and incongruity. Meaning, there's no singular purpose of will. It's just many multiple theories and beliefs. I am sure that even Immanuel Kant, author of Critique of Pure Reason, and critique of practical reason never analyzed those, this word to find its exact meaning. Freedom, a lovely word, a beautiful term. So many crimes have been committed in its name. Think of the French Revolution. At least one million people were killed in that event alone. Unquestionably, the term freedom has hypnotized the masses. The mountains and valleys, the rivers and seas have been tainted with the blood conjured up by this magical word. How many flags, how much blood and how many heroes have come to pass in the course of history whenever the question of freedom has been posed in life's scenario? Literally, America has been founded on the genocide of Native American people. The enslavement of others. unfortunately after achieving independence at such a high price enslavement continues to exist within each of us who is free how many have attained this famous freedom how many have been emancipated alas 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 adolescents long for freedom it seems incredible that while having food clothing and shelter They should want to flee their homes in the pursuit of freedom. It is incongruous that a teenage boy who has everything he needs at home is willing to run away, to escape from his abode, fascinated by the term freedom. Strangely, despite enjoying all the comforts of a happy home, he is ready to risk everything he has to travel the world and even come to grief. It is right that the pariahs in life The outcasts of society, the poor should be eager to quit the slums and hovels in order to seek a change for the better. Yet the spoiled child, the mama's boy, in search of a way out, is paradoxical and even an absurdity. However, this is how it is. The word freedom fascinates and enchants, although no one is able to define it precisely. It is logical that a young girl wants freedom, longs to move away from home to marry to her in order to escape from under the parental roof and lead a better life. This is in part due to her right to be a mother. Nevertheless, once married, she finds that she is not free. And with resignation, she must bear the shackles of slavery. A worker tired of so many regulations wants to be free. Even if he achieves independence, he soon encounters the problem Of continuing to be a slave to his own interests and concerns certainly each time that we fight for freedom we are disappointed despite victory so much blood is shed pointlessly in the name of freedom while we continue to be slaves of ourselves and of others people fight for words they will never understand although dictionaries give them the grammatical explanations Freedom is something that can only be achieved within ourselves. No one can achieve it outside of themselves. Riding through the air is a very Eastern phrase which allegorizes the sense of genuine freedom. No one can really experience freedom while their consciousness remains bottled up inside of the me, myself, the I. So this sense of self we mentioned, ego, is a condition it's a shell that traps our real potential there's more to us than our language our names our culture our customs our habits the essential nature of our being is consciousness which is altruism love happiness philanthropy patience etc which is the opposite of the self understanding the myself my persona what i am is imperative if we sincerely wish to attain freedom there is no way we can destroy the fetters of our enslavement without previously and totally comprehending this question of mine and all that concerns the me myself the i what constitutes slavery what is it that keeps us enslaved what are the obstacles We must discover all this. Rich and poor, believers and non believers, we could also say Democrats and Republicans, whomever, Buddhist, Christian, all are actually prisoners, although they consider themselves to be free. We will remain imprisoned as long as the consciousness, the essence, the most dignified and decent part within us, remains bottled up inside of the me, myself, the I, in our cravings, in fears, in our desires and passions, our preoccupations and our violence, and in our psychological defects. The sense of freedom can only be fully understood when we have annihilated the shackles of our very own psychological incarceration. It is very easy to see that we are a slave of what other people think. They say something negative about our appearance, our habits, our behaviors, and yet we react with anger, with resentment, with pride. It means that any person can push our button and make us react exactly as they want. However, if you comprehend in yourself your own anger and eliminate it, you have serenity. This is why beings like Jesus, when he was being tortured, horribly crucified, was able to say with love, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. While the I exists, the consciousness remains imprisoned. Escaping from that prison is only possible through the Buddhist annihilation. It's a term that means the dissolution or dissolving of the self, reducing it to ashes, to cosmic dust. And this is symbolized in many traditions, such as Jesus being on the cross in his passion to die to what is impure so that he can be resurrected as a soul, as a perfected being. So while he literally existed in the past, it also represents something allegorical for us in this individual work of meditation. The liberated consciousness, devoid of the I, absolutely absent of ego, without desires, without passions, without cravings and fears, directly experiences true freedom. Any idea we might have about freedom is not freedom. Those opinions that we hold about freedom are far from reality. The ideas that we form on the subject of freedom have nothing to do with genuine freedom, meaning the experience. You can read about it, but as t- in terms of a living concrete fact is very distinct. Freedom is something that has to be experienced directly and that is only possible by dying psychologically. Dissolving the I, ending the me, myself forever. It would not be no good to continue dreaming about freedom if we continue being slaves. It would be better to take a look at ourselves as we really are. Carefully observing the fetters of slavery that keep us imprisoned, Knowing ourselves, seeing what we are inside we shall discover the door to authentic freedom. And in reality, and in synthesis, we can state, in life, the only thing of importance is a radical, total, and definitive change. The rest, frankly, is of no importance at all. So meditation teaches us how to gather that knowledge, so that we can really go deep into our psychology and to change in a real way a permanent way a lasting way so in today's era we live we can say in a period of information you can find knowledge about any type of study on the internet alone but it's also true that we live in an era of misinformation While we have greater access to knowledge we've never been privy to before, we still continue to be confused. It's ironic, right? We have more knowledge and more information than we've ever possessed, and yet we are more conflicted, more divisive, and in more suffering than we've ever been. The reality is that we need to develop a type of consciousness that has to do with wisdom, and not knowledge. Intellectual knowledge is necessary to a point. What matters is the quality of our heart, our ways of being. And so, in our studies of meditation, we develop our knowledge of ourselves. We call it gnosis, experiential wisdom about the causes of suffering. And of course, it has nothing to do with theory, with beliefs with concepts because we can think that we are a certain way but if you observe in a very difficult moment of life the facts emerge right I'm sure we all had an experience where somebody said something really negative to us or we had a very traumatic moment in which we acted in a way that we didn't like we later reflected and says how did I think feel and behave that way those are the facts those are the Concrete experiences that show us what we can work on so that we can really develop altruism and compassion and serenity. All these virtues that are really beautiful and are our true nature. This is why no amount of theory or belief can change anyone. Gnosis has lived upon facts, withers away in abstractions, and is difficult to find even in the noblest of thoughts. And I know that a lot of people, especially approaching many uh, of the world's events today, have a lot of conspiracies about what's going on. But rather than focus on any type of external phenomena, it's better if we ask the question, how does our mind conspire against us? So I love this image of a hand holding up a puppet or puppets, which we can associate with either political party or whatever Anyone believes. But the reality is that if we have ego and if our government and politicians have ego, then obviously there's going to be fights and conflict and no type of harmony negotiated at all. Our mind needs to be free of any concepts about life, but rather just to examine with our soul. and VR states the following in Igneous Rose. There is the need to liberate the mind from every type of school, religion, sect, political party, concept of mother flag, country, prejudice, desire, and fear. There is the need to liberate the mind from the process of rationalization. There is the need to change the process of rationalization for comprehension. Comprehension is very different from thinking. You don't necessarily have to label anything with the intellect. You simply know it. Like you put your hand on a hot stove, it gets burned. That's a form of gnosis, a knowledge that if you do that again, you get hurt. And then you later think that was very painful. So that's the mind. The mind is slower than our other capacities as a consciousness. So there's a very stark difference there. So freedom has to do with transforming our internal state in the moment. Where we are at here and now. This is why all meditative traditions teach mindfulness, awareness, watchfulness. To gather data, to look at the facts of our own behaviors, and not to conceptualize anything, but simply look. Doesn't require thinking there. And that's how we cut away from the abstractions from the philosophy, from the theology, from the theories. And we get to what's practical. So we'll talk about, in synthesis, what meditation is really about. What it involves. This is from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, who is a great master of meditation. In synthesis, we have eight profound steps. It's better said if we call them principles. It doesn't mean that, like a checklist, you're going to go through each one. First, I need to do this, followed by this step, and next, in a mechanical way. These are very living things, principles, qualities of being, which, if you follow in sequence, and are really diligent about establishing them in your life, you'll find that you will have a great clarity by which to understand any problem that you're suffering and the ways to change it. The beginning is yama these are sanskrit terms yama means restraint it means to restrain the mind so you're at work or you're with a friend someone says something very negative maybe even political obviously there's a lot of debate going on today you feel anger come up the thoughts of you shouldn't think that you shouldn't say that or whatever reactions we feel in that instant And if we restrain that impulse, not repressing it, not hiding it, not judging it, but simply with your attention directed in yourself, you see it for what it is. And that to really act in this way, to speak these words of anger, is obviously going to make the other person angry. And so in the moment you restrain yourself, you don't act on that behavior because it's going to create conflict perhaps even split friendships, divorces, and many other problems. Restraint is the beginning. First, restraining your egotistical reactions to life with your consciousness. And that's a state of comprehension in which you see, if I act as a soul on this lower animal desire, it's going to create problems. But that's not enough. We have to follow what's known as niyama, precept. In every meditative tradition, in any religion, they teach you, be kind, be patient, be compassionate. Forgive your neighbor. Put other people's needs first above your own. Show philanthropy. Accept when you are wrong with humility. These are all precepts and virtuous qualities that you find in every scripture without exception. It's not enough just to restrain bad behaviors, it's necessary to enact good behaviors. And this is something that only you can judge in yourself, moment by moment. You can memorize the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, the New Testament, the Old Testament, whatever scriptures inspire you. But knowing that knowledge of virtue doesn't mean that you're enacting it. So the knowledge is different, but the application of it is wisdom. I know many people, they approach meditation and they become very morbid because they see a lot of negativity in themselves and they suffer and they want to get out of it, but they're not reflecting on the virtuous qualities of the consciousness, of their being, their divinity. So it's important not to reflect just on the bad, but to contemplate your virtues, those profound ethics of the soul, When you've really worked hard in developing restraint and following these precepts in your actions, your asana becomes perfected. It's easy to see that if you act on anger and you drain your mind and your heart, deplete your body of, of energy from getting in an argument, it's very difficult to sit. You can't sit still. You can't relax. Your body... Is tense filled with pain discomfort this is why yama and niyama are essential if you want your body to be able to obey you and relax at will you have to learn to act ethically so it's important that when you are practicing meditation that you pick an asana that works for you doesn't have to be full lotus half lotus if you're that flexible great Personally, I'm more of a, obviously, Western-style person. I sit in a chair. You can even lie down on your back if you have the stability of attention not to fall asleep because that's the important thing. Your body can relax, but your consciousness is awake, is vigilant, attentive. And once you've found your posture, you can work with energy. In our tradition, we have many exercises to work with energy. Energy energy is essential to life we find many forms in our body and if you've studied Hinduism or yoga they teach you all about the chakras which are vortices or wheels of vital force that circulate in a subtle form of our body in our glands there's energy that flows and there are certain practices you can use whether they be through prayer or sacred sounds called mantras you vocalize or you pray you can work with energy in your body circulate it get it flowing so that those channels of force like the chakras open and then you can have greater stability of mind it helps you to concentrate helps you to focus because in everything we do in life there's energy involved wherever we direct attention we expend creative energy says Samal Vior, the founder of our tradition so if you have no energy there if you waste it on anger and pride And lust especially, desire. You have no energy by which to work. Your consciousness is depleted. You can't drive your car. Your mind will be dull, will be out of fuel. This is why in every level and moment of our life, we seek to conserve energy, conserve emotional energy, conserve mental energy, conserve vital energy in all forms. In this way, when you have energy, your mind will start to calm. And this is where the crux of meditation begins to really unfold. We call it a pratyahara. It means suspension of the senses, to withdraw. So you can be seated. You can be in a meditation posture. You can work with energy itself. And in those moments, you start to find that with profundity of application and will you start to withdraw your mind, your senses from the external world. Everything goes inside. It's like the flow or ebb of a river that's going towards one source. And then the rest dries up. You just focus on your interior. You forget the world. Many people don't get to this point. They don't get past the body. There's an itch, discomfort. You want to move. You're in pain. And the reality is that You have to forget the body is even there. If you really want to go profoundly into meditation. Forget the body. First, take care of it. Treat it well. Relax. And when you really are working with your energies, you don't pay attention to anything outside. You go within. There's a stillness there. Which, when it's really profound, is the fulcrum by which meditation is experienced the state of understanding when there's silence of mind when you withdraw from the senses you can really concentrate on something and this is where and this is the preliminaries of meditation that get really interesting so when your senses are calm and you're relaxed you can direct your attention at one thing and even at this stage there tends to be a lot of difficulty for people because our mind is all over the place We're thinking of many things, we're distracted, we have associative thoughts, good, bad, yes, no. We think of a friend that we talked to earlier in the day and what they said, and that brings on a whole discussion in our mind, and then our mind is just replaying the day. But it's foggy, it's dull, there's no clarity or crispness there. Real concentration knows how to look at one object of focus and not get distracted. In many traditions, they teach you how to take a stone or a candle to observe a flame or to do a mantra, a sacred sound, and just focus on that one thing at the exclusion of everything. And if you're sincere in the beginning, you find you can't focus on that object. Your mind starts doing other things. And so you got to gently refocus yourself, bring it back to that one object of concentration. And I suggest that when you begin a meditation, whatever your focus is, stick to it. If it's just to concentrate on the candle flame, just do that one thing. And then the trick is, when you get distracted, bring yourself back. It's not forceful. It's not violent. You're not gagging the mind. You're gently redirecting your attention to the focus. The Buddha Shakyamuni stated that if you forget yourself a thousand times and you remember a thousand times to return to the practice, it means that you've practiced really well. So when you're able to concentrate on one thing, then you can really enter meditation itself. So all of this is just preliminary. Meditation is when you are able to extract information about that object. For example, maybe you're concentrating on a scripture you read or a book. You want to understand a certain verse or a line. You read it, you reflect on it, you enter the stages of meditation. You relax, withdraw, and concentrate on that meaning. In meditation, you can have experiences in which the senses are shut down, but internally, as a consciousness, you experience, such as in dreams, different forms of knowledge that are inaccessible to the senses. Some people call it lucid dreaming, out-of-body experiences, dream yoga, astral projection, It's when your body goes to sleep, but you as a consciousness are fully lucid. And so you abandon your physicality and you enter the internal worlds, your inner psyche. And then you can start to get knowledge about things that certain prophets wrote about. They hinted at, but not many of them really spoke openly about their meaning. And that's how you really get knowledge. That's real wisdom. When you can, in that state, talk directly with divinity, just as I am talking to you. Nothing vague there, nothing amorphous, nothing ambiguous. It's a clean, clear, pristine state of being in which you can gain information. Even beyond meditation, there's one more step. This is the synthesis of everything. When your consciousness is fully lucid and focused, is receiving information. You can escape from the limitations of your mind. Any type of conditioning that has kept you in suffering and pain, etc. You escape. You get out of it. That consciousness gets ex- extracted from the ego. I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Aladdin and his lamp. That lamp is your ego. And the genie, the jinn, which is the Arabic term for spirit or really an enlightened being you could say is your own wisdom your consciousness you break the lamp you destroy the ego permanently and then the genie is free you can perform miracles this is where you get figures like moses and many prophets performing supernormal things because they liberated their consciousness from conditioning they're able to control nature even very powerful and beautiful But there's more than just examining those eight stages. There's a lot of principles involved. When you're having those experiences with divinity, you can study what is called the tree of life. On the right, you see a map of 10 spheres. From the top, you have the most... Rarified states of being, which are very divine. Notice that in this glyph, you have three trinities. Kabbalah in Jewish mysticism, this map, this tree of life, is really an expression of us and our totality, in the multi dimensionality of our being. It is a roadmap for who we are and where we're at and where we need to go. So any experience in meditation can be mapped by any one of these spheres. So on the top trinity, we have qualities of being and consciousness that are extremely divine beyond our comprehension at this level. It has to do with what religions call Father, Son, Holy Spirit in Christianity. In Hebrew, we call it Keter, Hukma Bina, which means crown, wisdom and intelligence. This is the supremacy, the wisdom, and the intelligence of divinity, which is inside our true nature, liberated, and is with us here and now. But we just don't perceive it because we have so many other conditioning that we see represented by these lower spheres. Beneath that we have chesed, geborah, tiferet, or you could say mercy, justice, and beauty. We could say is our inner divine spark, our inner mercy, our inner Buddha. We could say our divine soul and our human soul, our human will. It is the beautiful action of a perfected being. And we are really a part of that. Part of us, known as the consciousness, emanates from this sphere, Tifereth, and descends down into lower conditioning or conditioned states of being. Netzach, victory; Hod, splendor; Yesod, foundation; and Malkut, kingdom. Malkut is the physical world that we live in. Yesod is our vital energy, sometimes known as the etheric world, the vital world. It's where we have all the forces that animate our body. And if you studied uh, the Kirlian camera, amongst uh, I believe Russian scientists, they even take pictures of people's or people and stones and animals aura. So the vital force is yasod, which is the aura of a living being we have hod which relates to our emotions netzak relating to our mind and this is a beautiful map of meditation because it teaches us that if our willpower our consciousness is conditioned by thought by feeling and by desire instincts it means that we're attached not only to our physical body but even to lower realms of being which is mapped as below called the the tree of death it is the shadow of the tree of life it is known as the hell realms so you can call this map a reference point of external realities and even our internal states there's a relationship there different dimensions of expression and being above we have superior levels below we have inferior ones and in our moment-to-moment awareness from our birth towards our death, we have an opportunity in this instant in which to ascend. This is why we do practices of concentration, prayer, meditation. All of these things help us to purify this will that is at the center of the tree of life so that it can obey and follow our own divinity within. This sphere, Tifereth, in Hebrew meaning beauty, is the essence, it is the beauty of our soul that knows how to act uprightly. But unfortunately for us, we're conditioned by negative thoughts, negative feelings, and negative impulses, desires. So we have many books and courses that explain this glyph in great detail. And I invite you to study them. But in synthesis, this is just a map of who we are and where we need to go and what we need to do. There are also two very profound principles we've touched upon. In some schools, they talk about stabilizing and analytical meditation. And often refer to both of them as complementary. When you're working to concentrate your will on one thing, you're learning to stabilize the mind. You're developing serenity. You're developing focus and equanimity. It's when you can look at something clearly without unwavering at all. We call that faculty in the Gnostic tradition concentration. In Buddhism, they call it shamatha. Amongst the Sufis, they call it silence. In which your mind doesn't talk. So I'm sure when we practice meditation today, you probably experience a chain of thoughts and thinking, even on a very subtle level. When you really go deep, you can learn to enter states in which there's no thought involved. And we're able to focus on one thing without distraction. That can stabilize our attention. And there are many practices to do that. But there's another skill we need to develop in order to really enter meditation. We call it imagination. Imagination is the ability to perceive non-physical imagery. So when I relate it to certain examples or talking about having inner experiences like you have dreams, those are forms of images that exist in your mind, in your interior. They're real. They exist. The problem is that we tend to go through that inner world without any awareness of it and not discriminating what is really real or conditioned or unconditioned by our own egotism. It's easy to see that if we have dreams of Hatred and violence, we're projecting our own mind into that world. But if you learn to pay attention and clarify your perception, you can perceive those worlds, that tree of life, as it is. In its real fundamental expression. When you're able to imagine in your, amongst concentration, the ability to visualize certain images, you develop the full dynamism and potential of the consciousness. So imagination in us tends to be very conditioned. If I say, imagine an apple, you can see it. Not physical, but it's internal. That same capacity, when it's developed intentionally, whether you take a candle and visualize a flame, or even something really difficult and ornate, like a Buddhist mandala, or painting, something very intricate, that develops the capacity of the Consciousness to perceive with great depth, with great width and clarity. In Buddhism, they call that faculty Vipassana. Amongst the Sufis, it is insight. And when you combine those two faculties, concentration and imagination, you can really enter Meditation. So, we need both. We need the ability to stabilize the consciousness so that it's calm, but then we also need the ability to see, and that's insight. You combine the two, you gain knowledge. That's how you really enter the higher stages of real religion, of mystical experience. I know these are very synthetic principles, they're very deep, and you can basically spend a lot of time studying. What these practically entail we have a lot of resources that you can uh research on your own we have courses we have books that talk about all of these principles in depth i wanted to just survey them and provide an outline so that you have a picture of where to start so whether you're interested in learning basic concentration or equanimity you can study courses like meditation essentials and meditation without exertion on gnosticteachings.org We also have some courses on ChicagoGnosis.org, one of them based on Gnostic principles, Gnostic meditation, and even Sufism we're giving a course which is talking about meditation as taught within the Sufi teachings of Islam, the mystical teachings. These outline for you how to develop concentration, serenity, and insight. We also have some books you can study as well to learn the basics of self-reflection. Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology and the Great Rebellion by Samal and are perfect for this. You can learn the basics of how to examine, observe yourself so that you can begin to gain knowledge and enter the path that is culminating in meditation. You can also study the Elimination of Satan's Tale and the Revolution of the Dialectic as well. These are very profound books, very practical. If you have any questions, uh, I invite you to ask them.
2: If you're listening online, you're going to need to type all questions into the chat. We don't have audio to hear you. Sure. Being in a time of um, an election year and all these things going on, and we really need to separate ourselves from all these different concepts are we, is the goal to just be passive in all this stuff and not vote or not be involved and just really sit back and observe what's going on in the world without getting identified
1: with it? Sure. I would say psychologically, the important thing is not to identify. Whatever a person believes politically, that's a personal choice. Um, but the important thing is to approach this situation with clarity. And it doesn't mean that. We necessarily have to belong to any party either one or the other or take a middle stance you know personally i don't really get involved in politics because you see the type of behavior that's being propagated and the confusion and the anger and the resentment that people feel i think the important thing to remember is that regardless of anyone's political beliefs in these studies would like to be more effective regardless of anyone we vote for or whom you favor or whatever. What do we believe in? The important thing is that we have a good heart. We change our own psychological states because the world is gonna be what it's gonna be. You know, I I know we like to think that we have a lot of agency in our political system, but I think a lot of people are realistic in saying like, you know, these things are gonna happen regardless because you see the state of humanity. People on an individual scale are not changing. And so what result can we expect? And that's the fundamental irony of people thinking that are being shocked by what's happening because this is just the consequence of wrong action on a global scale from everybody so i invite us to really reflect upon our own psychological states because that's something that we can change that's something we can alter and remedy but the direction of this country and humanity in a sense, we have to be humble to accept that there are certain things that we can't change. But there are certain things that we can do. And that's better evaluated on an individual basis.
2: Okay, we have another question. From what I've learned through time, through this Gnostic tradition, I've noticed that sexual alchemy is not the central practice. Meditation is. Alchemy is more like the foundation of a practice. So the question is, Buddhist and Hindu traditions are the only religions that teach how to meditate. Why have these religions in the West not spread this light? Why did Jesus only teach how to believe in him? And why did Muhammad only teach how to believe in Allah? And Moses mainly taught how to follow laws. And nothing about meditation. Why is that?
1: It's a good question. The reality is that they all taught it. If you look at the different traditions that have developed in their original sources their scriptures the reality is that they all taught the same thing you study the sufi teachings of kushari hujari rumi many other muslim mystics they all ibn arabi especially they teach meditation but maybe not as explicitly as we find today the path of jesus is the path of meditation especially he taught by fasting 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness how to overcome your own devil the mind we find meditation in all teachings the problem is that due to the cultural palate of certain people they adulterated they sterilized they castrated the teaching so people adulterate the wisdom of the prophets with time And therefore, the religions of today don't resemble anything they used to. Now, there's certain remnants that we can pick and extract and gain knowledge from. And this is important. But it's important to remember that these religions and teachings have died. The form is what's left. The essence and the spirit had long left these traditions. You find this cyclically repeated in different humanity or humanities and in different cultures. Every religion has a birth, life, and death. Comes to my mind, uh, even a saying by a certain Sufi mystic in uh, al Risalah Principles of Sufism. This was around one thousand eighty. AD, he's, or Common Era. He said, in this time, Sufism is dead. So back then, even that tradition was had long been eclipsed because... These traditions have life and they're sustained based on the qualities of the practitioners. And divinity works in different places and times and periods and reinitiates that effort amongst different faiths throughout the course of history because with time, with exposure to humanity, obviously, people's interpretations and conditions of mind pollute the original doctrine. This is why Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees who take the original bread of knowledge and inflate it so that it's more palatable and tasty to the public. The reality is that nobody likes the original teachings of the mystics and the meditators, the prophets, because it goes contrary to what people believe. But if you really examine in synthesis, what these different traditions teach, they all teach meditation, but in different ways. You find meditation in Kabbalah in the Jewish mystical traditions. You find it in Sufism, you find it in the Bible. But of course, with time, people take out what they don't like. So, I don't know, maybe we, we can say in the West that we just like to be hyperactive and not really sit still in the moment. In the East, you know, a lot more people, part of the culture, practice meditation. So, we study all traditions in synthesis.
2: When meditating on an ego, what's the best way to visualize it during meditation in order to comprehend it?
1: so for those who are not familiar with that type of meditation we call it psychoanalysis where you're sitting and you're performing these preliminary steps relaxing working with energy withdrawing your senses concentrating upon your consciousness and even your inner divinity your being you can also imagine we practice what's called retrospection meditation you visualize in the day with your vision itself what happened? Perhaps you had a moment at work in which you faced a conflict. In that work, you saw certain reactions emerge that worked together. Maybe it was anger, resentment, pride, and fear. Four different egos, you could say, different senses of self, different wills manifested in you as you were observing your mind, your heart, and your body. In the day you were gathering data about those qualities as they emerge but when you're sitting to meditate and go deeper to gain more understanding you can just simply look at those states you visualize what happened and the trick is when you start to visualize that scene your ego your defects will start to emerge they'll want to feed on that memory they want to repeat those behaviors and thoughts and desires etc You have to separate enough from yourself that you can look at that internal mechanism and to see it for what it is. So when you're concentrating and visualizing, you look and you examine the taste of that conditioned self. You have to look at the flavor it brings in your mind, but have enough separation that you don't identify. Because if you identify with resentment, pride, fear, anger, you get sucked into memories and then you're not even meditating anymore you're just lost in a chaos you're just churning with those sentiments so the best visual visualization obviously occurs in levels you have to follow your heart in terms of what you need to study your conscience will tell you what you need to work on if you feel that anger was a big problem in your moment-to-moment day or experience focus on that and look at it you can pray to your inner divinity to help you understand we call that divinity the divine mother the feminine aspect of our inner being symbolized by mary and many feminine figures throughout world mythologies she's part of us that helps us work on those faults you can pray to her and ask her to show you about this particular ego you need to understand if you really go deep and you're concentrating very profoundly you could have an experience where in the astral world or the internal world of dreams your divine mother will show you what this ego is how it works what it looks like what are its thoughts and you will intuit the meaning if you're very vigilant you'll know and understand where it came from why it behaves what it does how it feeds how it sustains itself how it relates to other aggregates different egos now, the best visualization is going to be based on your conscience, follow your heart. If you feel that you need to focus on a specific ego, one by one, do that. And focus and ask your divinity to help you understand. The next step is just don't identify with it. Don't feed it. Don't give it its en- your energy. Because when you start to... Conserve your energy and not spend it on negative behaviors. It's like starving a lion. And so obviously anger and fear and all these different defects are going to come up in your life wanting to feed because you're starving them. They're starting to get weak. So look at the ego and have a receptive mind. Wait for the answer. And when you're really in a state of silence and insight... The experience will unfold of its own. You now this is the magic and beauty of meditation. It's never the same moment by moment. There's always different experiences that are, reflect a huge range, an infinite range of experiences. But that's the result. And when you gain insight, you may follow, you may ask for elimination, to remove that ego, when you really understood what it is, how it works how it traps you, how it repeats. And pray to your Divine Mother and then visualize that defect to be killed. And then you free the soul that's trapped in it gradually, little by little, as your comprehension goes deeper. I hope that answers your question. Sure. Um,
3: So you were explaining earlier about freedom. And the way that you were explaining it also reminds me of what's going on in life right now so for example and uh, looting and stealing so where i'm coming where i'm coming from is how can the people that are that are committing these atrocities right they're acting for freedom but in reality is fear so how can we even identify like you, you said that these type of people that are doing these things, they are the extensions of who we are already. So how can within us, how can we identify the sense of freedom with the sense of fear and discern that and act accordingly?
1: Sure. Gnosis is lived upon facts, withers away from abstractions, from theories and beliefs, and is difficult to find even in the noblest of thoughts. The way that you're going to figure out what's from the soul and what's from the ego, what's fear and desire, what's true from what's false, is by looking. And it means that we approach our mind and our heart without trying to label what we see. You will learn to discriminate that quality based on experience. It's not easy to learn how to sift through the mud so that you can find the, the gold of our soul. It's a qualitative state. Through observation and repeated verification of that state, you find that there are qualities that are pure and conditioned and sometimes mixed. And that's why we meditate, so that we can discriminate. Because it's not easy in the moment when you're having a scene in life or you're seeing the looting and violence going on, like in Chicago, where people are screaming for freedom, And are destroying so many people's properties and homes and lives. The abstraction of freedom is not enough. Real freedom is when you don't act on anger. You have to look at your anger and what it wants and what it thinks. And have the strength to not repress it, to hide from it, or to justify it. But when you look at it with clarity, meaning you're seeing it for what it is. And you notice how your own anger wants to feed, how to act. You only learn that through trial and error by repeatedly training yourself. It takes time and training. You know, I know we say that this type of knowledge is beyond time. You're not looking to the past and the future, but it takes experience to verify what's, what's right and what's wrong. And you have to follow your conscience, your heart. I know, for example, when I trained in martial arts for many years, you don't really learn how to do the techniques well after, until after a very long time of just repeated trial and error and even maybe even getting hurt you know that's our struggle we suffer a lot as we're trying to change but the purpose is not to get discouraged you know you're going to feel pain and suffering as a soul by making mistakes but repeated effort and struggle against yourself is going to take some repeated experience you know it is a war you can say this is why in Islam they talk about jihad holy war but not against other people. Against people who don't follow your faith. It has to do with the struggle against your desires. And the only way that you're going to really conquer is if you don't give up. If you just give in to anger, then there's, you're very painful. But it's a struggle. We have to learn how to acculturate our mind and heart to taste that quality of being that we know is from, from God. And that is not unfiltered by anything. So... If you have doubts about certain experiences or certain actions that you did, if you feel in your heart that there's something you need to investigate, then that's what you got to meditate on. Because that moral pain, the pangs of conscience, the intuitions of the heart is what's going to really direct you. Follow that. Sure.
3: So a lot of us are um, surrounded we we might not be acting or we might have stopped acting in those, those manners, but a lot of us are surrounded by people that are acting with, like I said, with fear, seeking that type of freedom or their suffering. So in a practical manner, what is the best way not to scold them, not to, more with comprehension, but how can we aid these people? Because a lot we're, we're surrounded by them. They're, they could be either a family member, they can be a friend, they can be a coworker. So how can we assist them?
1: Love. It's been demonstrated repeatedly throughout historical mov- movements, whether uh, Martin Luther King Jr, Gandhi, ahimsa, nonviolence is the key. We show violence towards people even with our thoughts we think that violence only occurs physically but if you have an argument with someone you disagree if you want to coerce someone to think like you if you create a division whereas i am a democrat and you're a republican or i am a jew and you are a muslim or a buddhist christian murray says that's a form of violence because we are saying that we're separate I like what the Dalai Lama said is that we are all individuals, human beings. We all have the same longing for happiness and the same aversion towards pain. Everyone thinks this is like that, regardless of your theological position or beliefs. So we show love for others when we respect their ways of thinking. We may know that they're ignorant or you may feel that sentiment in a subtle way that wants to say, oh, they just don't know any better, and and yet we have resentment of our own. That is our problem. Oftentimes, we don't reach people because, and we're not effective, is because we have our own ego, our own desires that think they know better. And that's the problem with the abstractions. We have many ideologies and ways of thinking that convince us that they're wrong, I'm right. But the reality is that they think the same way. So rather than take a position, you can show them love, But this doesn't mean that we accept behaviors from their part that are wrong it also doesn't mean that we're forceful or we're imposing on their free will persuasion is a much more elegant art elegant and eloquent art than coercion coercion is when you want to force someone to think like you according to your ideologies but persuasion is when from your being and your conscience offer a solution And from that position of or that threshold of you're offering something in as an olive branch to that person to help them from your heart and not expecting that they're going to follow it or demanding that they do but simply offering it that's a type of space that is really powerful it comes from divinity for really cultivating that so we have to respect people's free will the reason why this political race and the state of humanity is so crazy it's because no one respects each other's will everybody thinks they know the answer and therefore they're arguing debating arguments we can say are really satanic honestly one person against another who think they know better and their pride is just a big battle it's violence it's like watching people box it's really sad Instead, the reality is that we have to learn to approach a person with love. And that love knows how to set boundaries even for oneself while respecting the will of the other person. And that respect for others only comes when we respect our inner divinity. Who knows right from wrong? And when you intuit that and you know that, you can offer it to a person. But you can't expect that people are going to follow that. Look what happened to Jesus. And he's a great master. And look what humanity did. So we have to be willing to face the consequences of our ethics. If people don't like it, that's fine. We don't expect that people are going to respect what we have to say, and we have to be fine with that. You're welcome.
2: Are psychological identification and karmic circumstances the same thing? Or is non-identification the way out of our karmic situation into real freedom?
1: Our karma is based on what we do. Whether you are identified or you, with the situation or not. So, in strict language, identification has to do with when you, as a consciousness, feel and think and behave that you are the desire, the condition. Fear, pride, resentment, anger, laziness, gluttony, or whatever defect. The quality of your mind in this moment determines your trajectory where you go whether in life or in nature so if we act with a polluted mind then obviously we're going to feel we're going to experience pain but if we act with purity then the necessary and logical consequence is that we bring harmony in our situations and our politics and our humanity and our life so your karma is based on the quality of your mind you receive what you do you reap what you sow in synthesis so if you want better states and experiences in life act with ethics show compassion have love for others even if it hurts and basically even Shanti Davis said it all happiness in this life comes from watching the happiness of others And all pain in this life occurs because we wish happiness for ourselves. Simple dynamic, but very profound. It is the essence of Tibetan Buddhism. So if you want better circumstances, act ethically. Don't identify with your egotism, your pride. In fact, eliminate it if you want to be really radical, have radical changes. Any other questions? There's one more here. Sure.
2: Once you have stopped yourself from squandering energy, what steps should one take next? When one achieves equilibrium, it can be challenging to accept this sustained energy. Many experiences occur, for instance, premonitions, past life experiences, and consistently receiving messages. This can be overwhelming. What can one do to adjust to this new experience instead of being cast out due to the fatigue that arrives with mitigating the mind's inability to explain this new experience logically.
1: Be patient. When you have mystical experiences, obviously it can be very alarming. I know when I first started meditating and practicing these type of principles, I had a lot of experiences in my dreams especially, which obviously in the beginning you can get freaked out, or you could feel like a messiah and like oh i know the mysteries of life and death and i can go tell everybody right but uh i suggest that if you find when you're working with energy and you feel perhaps overwhelmed by it you can minimize that if you need to you know it's good to work with energy but more importantly it's good to have self-control and i suggest if you are overwhelmed by these types of things it's, it's important to you know learn to in a simple sense have fun you know don't have to ruminate over the state of humanity being morbid or in a state of suffering is not going to help anybody you know being concerned for humanity yes you're maybe overwhelmed it's normal in the beginning but you gain stability through practice so i suggest meditating on your own discomforts and uneasiness even. But also it's good to have a community of people you can socialize with too who you know, hopefully study these, these things who are spiritually like-minded. And have fun, relax. You know, it doesn't mean you're going to you know, not go crazy, but just uh, to help settle your mind. Recreation is a necessary quality to a degree, according to Swami Shivananda. You can't just be serious, you know. It's good to be serious in this work, but if you become morbid, that's a problem. You become over-agitated, filled with fear or anxiety is is an issue. So learn to, whether it's painting, sculpting, getting exercise, doing yoga. Some people like to do yoga classes. Uh, Meditation is especially helpful. Going out in nature. Hiking, especially, is something I like to do. So it's important.
2: I have some questions on non-exclusive meditation or Mo Um A few questions about that. Um, in that uh, state of, in that mode of meditation, is there a division between observer and observed? Number one, is there imagination involved when you're just observing in the screen of your mind the images, the thoughts, the conversations, the problems, the preoccupations, and all of that? Sure. And would you um, recommend that we kind of master or get really good at one point in meditation to get better at non-exclusive?
1: So, good questions. So, in synthesis, with non-exclusive meditation, you want to, or you examine your state of mind as it is, which we began our practice today to a degree using that. If you find that you're not able to maintain enough stability to remember that presence, your own innate observation it's good to return to a concentration practice where you can just focus on an object and let that be your your anchor now imagination isn't all things that's the beautiful teaching about consciousness every living thing even the atom and an electron subatomic particles have consciousness this is something that's been verified by quantum physicists they studied the behavior of light and even that light makes choices and experiments depending on who is observing and what is going on. So, imagination is the capacity to perceive. So, we have imagination at our level. Now, when you're developing imagination with, say, non-exclusive meditation, you're looking in yourself and not dividing yourself, making these separations in yourself about what you're perceiving. That's a very deep, profound state of perception in which you're looking in which that state of looking is not conflicted between am I observing or am I not observing? Because as soon as you do that, you lose the state. But if you're really deep in that uh, perception, you don't uh, make any false divisions, which some all in VR states, some people make the mistake of dividing themselves between a superior eye and an inferior eye. Ignoring that that's the same or the two sides of the same coin. So when you're Looking in yourself, you, you can't make those, you don't want to make those divisions or don't, let, don't identify when the ego starts to divide itself. Makes that mechanism of superior eye, inferior eye. Division. Dualism there. That's the problem. What sees synthetically into the nature of any phenomena is when your consciousness is clear and you just look at the state of your being, where you're at. But if you find that it's difficult to maintain that continuity, it's important that you can do Concentration exercises to build that. They call that mindfulness. Some people, they make a blurred definition of mindfulness and awareness. You know, very common today. Awareness is being present in the moment. Where you're at, what you're doing, what you're thinking. Paying attention is when you're directing your focus on one thing. Awareness is when you're expanding your consciousness outward and perceiving all the details of life. Mindfulness is the continuity of that perception in which you don't forget that you're watching. That's vigilance. I mean, your consciousness is not sleeping. You're paying attention. So if you find it difficult to practice uh, non-exclusive meditation where you're just observing what's going on in your mind, you can't maintain that continuity. Then return to the concentration. It can help you regroup yourself until you have that stamina, so to speak. Yes. Could you speak a little?
2: about grief because I know a lot of people are suffering and a lot of people have lost loved ones due to COVID or cancer. And when you're in that deep state of grief and it just depletes your energy you're really kind of thrown off track how, how to get yourself back to a state of equanimity.
1: Sure. We have many practices in this tradition to help with depression. Uh, one of them is, you know, relying on prayer, especially. We have a book called Esoteric Medicine, Practical Magic. There's some exercises in which when we're developing that powers of the consciousness, which is the ability to perceive and to concentrate, to pray and to influence nature, we can work with the souls of plants. We call it uh, elemental therapy. There's ways to work with, for example, the essence or soul or really the spirit of a plant, you can say. Now, every living thing has consciousness at its level. Some in more, less evolved degrees and some more evolved. Plants have a certain power and potency, which is very well studied, especially in Latin American countries. But we have practices in our tradition where we can work with the souls of uh, the rose. And obviously the rose is a prominent symbol of love and romantic relationships. But people don't understand too that the rose has the power to heal sicknesses doesn't require uh, anything more than taking three roses, placing them in three glass cups or three glasses with pure water. And there's a sequence that you drink. You pray to the soul of the plant and to your divinity. Help me to work with the souls of this plant, the rose. Which is like a queen, really, in the elemental kingdom of souls that are progressing in their development towards entering a humanoid state. They're very pure and innocent. They're like the really the purity of Eden those souls haven't left paradise, so to speak, unlike us. And you drink one glass in the morning, one glass in the afternoon, one glass in the evening before dinner or before each meal. And it simply involves prayer. It's simple and a lot of people might scorn these type of things because they don't really practice it. But I know when I've suffered emotional trauma and sufferings, I always go to the roses and this ritual and this prayer you can do, which you find in that book, Esoteric Medicine, Practical Magic, because the souls of nature have the power to heal. Each plant in nature has the capacity and the means of channeling certain energies and forces that are conducive for our well-being. You find that type of culture in amongst the indigenous tribes of uh, Latin America, the Maya, the Aztecs, the... Mamas of the Sierra Nevada and many other tribes that have ancient traditions which fortunately we have access to this knowledge. So the roses are effective for that. I mean I've had moments in my life where I was really traumatized. Not only just by maybe losing someone but facing conflicts in spiritual groups. So there's nothing worse that hurts than the spiritual stab when you're betrayed by groups of people. When I had that happen to me I work with the roses and You know, I'm fine. You can heal. So you can do the same thing with traumas too.
2: I have a follow-up question. So when it comes to meditation with grief, is grief a defect that we need to meditate on, like an ego we need to comprehend? Or is it something else, some other part of our experience of life?
1: Good question. There are the pains of the soul and the pains of the ego. You know, the ego or the ego of shame or grief, is really anger. Inverted anger. Maybe not directed at other people, but directed inside. So it's a form of hatred, self-hatred, which is very deep, can be very deep. But there are types of sufferings in the soul that are also very profound, which, you know, have to be healed if we really want to advance. But a lot of times when people deal with grief, It can be a mixture. You know, obviously there's that natural grief and sentiment of loss. When we as a soul lose someone, obviously there's that quality of essence there, the consciousness. But sometimes we may feel grief for things that are really inconsequential. It can be an inverted anger when it's hatred, but it's inverted, directed at oneself. This is why certain people become suicidal. Because their hatred is directed at themselves consciousness is not there when people obviously commit suicide is a great tragedy but the reality is that you know they have so much self-hatred that they can't separate from it but meditation can teach you how to extract the consciousness from those depressive elements so that you can see them for what they are and in that way you don't get caught up in that vortex of suffering
2: so is grief for someone that we love, uh, the problem of attachment? Or is it okay?
1: It can be both. you got to examine your mind because some, in our cases, most of us, we are very conditioned by attachments where, you know, we obviously suffer, but it's a natural sentiment of the soul to feel that longing for that person and even uh, obviously feel upset. But a lot of our attachments, our psychology is conditioned. We say that we're 97% conditioned perception. So most of the times, if we lose someone, it's gonna, you know, be mixed with impurities, with attachments. Obviously, we have to love people regardless if they're with us or whether we're not with us. And to be willing, if we really love a person, we have to be willing that, according to with their karma and their life and their trajectory and their journey. That they need to go through their process and to respect that. We can still feel sorrow for them and miss them, but it doesn't mean that we become completely distraught and suicidal. Um,
3: There's actually two questions. Um, one has to do with what you mentioned about grief. Um, I, I experienced experience in my life something very uh, traumatic, which was the the daughter of my, my, the death of my first daughter, and she passed away at a very young age. Even recently, even today's method the beginning of our reflection meditation, um, you mentioned trauma, and it really brought me back to that. But it immediately brought tears to my eyes, and it's been years that I say, and no, I'll go back to that when I'm ready. I'll go back to that when I'm ready. But when you are experiencing such a strong pain, in that reflection, how can you combat that so, you can, so you're able to penetrate into that trauma and actually see things? And, and so one of my things is, how do I observe what went down that day without getting so identified?
1: good question. And then
3: the follow-up question to that is, you talked about um, reflecting on good qualities like love, but most of us don't even know what love is. So, how can we even tap into that and reflect on something so positive when we have something so strong, which is the ego?
1: Sure. Good questions. I said the first question. I said the first question is um, in the words of Samuel and Vior, he says that if we really want to annihilate an ego, we have to be willing to break and even weep tears of blood if necessary to feel that grief and you know even just cry cuz bottling it up is not good you know it's uh sometimes if you really if you've really seen an ego and comprehended it and have really understood the pain of a certain moment really deeply you'll cry it's painful but there is a certain type of release that is there when you are able to confront that emotion. Because repressing it and numbing it doesn't get anywhere. You know, if we numb ourselves, it's just going to churn and get stronger underneath the surface. And sometimes when I've seen certain egos and meditated on my own culpability, seen things that I did wrong in my life, I've wept myself silly. I mean, just really cried. Broke into pieces. Sobbing. And we need that. Sometimes we have to just let ourselves confront that emotion and to experience it, that remorse. Now, in terms of the second question, you know, the fact that we are so filled with ego that it becomes very difficult to know what's virtuous. As you said in your example, how you lost your daughter, you can reflect on that love that you felt from her and for her because really that is a strong bond to share with someone. And sometimes we like to think that really to know what love is, you have to be very elevated. But we all have our level of experience. You know, as a mother, obviously losing their child, you have that intense love and sacrifice for that person, for your child. So reflect on that you know obviously all the other emotions and sentiments and confusion and maybe agony and anger and resentment at the situation it's all circling around one thing which is the love you feel for her so the ego is secondary the consciousness is first that shows us that our essential nature is love but we just tend to distract ourselves from from that so you can reflect on that especially that bond that relationship because it's showing you that everything else is gravitating around that essential quality and there are ways to heal and to regroup but sometimes it means that we have to really break the shell and it's painful it's not easy that's why many people don't stick with meditation they leave Precisely, because they want to confront this. But when you have the courage to let yourself shatter for however long you need, you can begin to regroup, fit the pieces together. But bottling up is not going to be, you know, healthy. But reflect on that love you felt. You're welcome. We're going to have to wrap up. So I thank you all for coming. For those of you online, we appreciate your questions. And uh, we look forward to sharing more with you in the future. Thank you for coming.
0: To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at chicagognosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy, may all beings be joyful, may all beings be in peace.